Imagine if each morning when you wake up, you're smiling and looking forward to your day, knowing you are happy even while you're dealing with grief and loss. The Grief and Happiness Podcasts inspires, comforts, and supports you with each new episode. I'm Emily Zerothret, welcoming you to explore with me your life of endless possibilities. Aloha! I am very happy to bring to you today this podcast with Fleet Mall, who has a fascinating story that I think we'll learn much from. Welcome, Fleet. Can you tell us a little bit about you? Yeah, I don't know exactly where to start. I live on the East Coast of the U.S. with my wife, Sophie, and uh, our new puppy, well, 10-month-old, 11-month-old now, not so new, but and um, little, live in a little New England town, kind of rural New England town. I grew up in the Midwest. Um, I've lived all over. Spent, lived in South America for quite a bit while I was young. And uh, I happened, part of my story is that I spent 14 years in prison uh, from 1985 to 1999. And uh, as a result of that, I do a lot of prison work. I have a nonprofit that I've been responsible for for 33 years that brings mindfulness meditation into the criminal justice and public safety worlds. And I do a lot of teaching online. I'm a meditation teacher, put on a lot of big online summits. And um, yeah, like that. That's that's absolutely amazing. I, I love the fact that you're working with prisons because it, it seems to me like they would be, people in, in prison would be left out of, of the world of caring and compassion and when they're they're not healthy and dying. And I think it's wonderful that there's something that, that you do for them or make happen. Yeah, I happen to do my time. I, I, I was uh, incarcerated in a federal prison on drug charges back in uh, 1985. And I ended up doing my time at the U.S. Medical Center for Federal Prisoners, which is the maximum security hospital in the federal prison system. And it was the height of the AIDS epidemic and men were mm-hmm. dying in terrible conditions there from AIDS and many other illnesses as well. And I, with another fellow prisoner, uh, we started the first hospice program in a prison anywhere in the world that we know of. And that became a big part of my life during during that journey and uh, continued to be. So that's been another major involvement of mine is end-of-life care and, and hospice work. And, uh, you know, interestingly, you know, I know that this, at least in part, the subject of your podcast has to do with grief. Been, you know, a fair amount of research around grief with people who are incarcerated. And, you know, they really are suffering from multiple kinds of grief. I mean, just getting locked up, you know, there's, there's already a tremendous amount of loss, obviously, loss of your freedom, loss of being connected with your family, loss of your position in the world. There's a kind of what what uh, sociologists call a social death that you go through. You've lost your your position in the world, and then of course we were working with men who were you know receiving terminal diagnoses in in prison, suffering from one illness or another. So there you are, already in prison, having already suffered a lot of loss and this kind of social death, and now you're you know you're suffering anticipatory grief over the possibility of losing your life and ending your ending your life in prison. Um, and so it's really, you know, kind of multiple compound grief. And so a lot of that work in supporting men who were dying 
was re- really helping them, you know, work their way through that uh, as best we could. You know, we're mostly our role was to be a helping friend. But we we uh, we did a lot of training and, and we did a lot of training around grief and working with grief. So a lot of that work had to do uh, had to do with that, as well as the families, you know, are, are really struggling because their loved one is dying in prison. They have very little access to them. You know, the the person has very limited, uh, no options around their care. They um, and uh, and care can be very limited in prison. So it can be really painful for the families. They can feel very helpless and hopeless around the situation. So, and interestingly, you know, the impact when men would die when our when our these you know might say our our hospice patients, but they really became our friends. In the chapel there, we would do a memorial service once a quarter, and whoever, you know, had passed in that quarter, we would include them in a memorial service. And, you know, some of their, if they had friends in the prison, fellow prisoners, whether hospice volunteer or others would come and we'd do this memorial service. But also whenever I lost one of my patients, I had a fellow hospice volunteer I was quite close to who eventually died there and died, went from being a healthy hospice patient to becoming someone um, suffering with cancer and died of cancer there. But uh, prior to that, he and I, when either one of our patients would die, we would go hang out and spend some time together and just support each other in that way. So um, some some really, you know, interesting journeys around dealing with uh, death and loss and grief and so forth in the prison work. You mentioned we. Uh, is that uh, fellow prisoners or uh, like when you said we got training? Yeah, the hospice volunteers. We developed this hospice training program there, and we always managed to keep about ten. But it was pretty transitory. A lot of people came and went in this in this prison, so we did a lot of training and tried to keep at least ten uh, prisoners uh, trained as volunteers. So this was a this was a program in cooperation with with medical staff and nursing staff. We had an interdisciplinary care team, but the the delivery of the hospice caregiving was by prisoners. Uh, you know, working with their fellow prisoners. And so we brought in outside uh, people to to train across the whole realm of end of life care and hospice. And uh, the wonderful woman that came in and did uh, training for us around grief like four times a year. Uh, we we had this whole cycle of training. We had like twenty training sessions, and we would just keep repeating it. So anyway, we got a lot of a lot of training in that. And uh, so I was referencing the the volunteers. Yeah. That's wonderful. And now if, if somebody's on hospice in prison, are they in the same cell or location that they always have been, or do they go to a different place? Are they together? Well, that, it, that varies depending on the facility. You know, the place where I was, uh, they were up in a, one of the hospital wards, uh, and there was not a designated um, hospice area. So, but there were like there were like eight, at least eight different hospital wards. Uh, most of our hospice patients were either on the AIDS ward wing or the cancer wing. And um, although they're, they're spread around because men were dying of, uh, you know, heart disease and liver disease and, and different things. But anyway, they, they were scattered around. So they weren't like in a regular cell with other prisoners. They were up in a medical ward, but they weren't in a designated hospice uh, unit. There are some prisons that have a designated hospice unit, and uh, so it really varies. So did they, then they had like one-on-one with the hospice volunteer? Is that how that worked? Yeah, we, we would we would go up and spend time with them, sometimes help them eat if they weren't able to eat on their own, help them communicate with their family, take them down to, 
you know, to out to the yard to get fresh air to, um, you know, just get off the hospital ward to get go down to the chapel for religious services. Uh, you know, we would bathe them and and uh, we did all the all the hands on care. We, we didn't do any medical care. You know, we weren't giving meds or, or taking vitals or anything like that. But we did all the other kinds of care. That sounds so wonderful to know that that there's some sort of personal comfort at a time like that. And I imagine for the volunteers, it was rewarding, too. Yeah, it was really a win-win situation because it met a, it met a tremendous need, but it was also a very transformative journey for the for the uh, volunteers themselves. Absolutely. Who would you say, in general, your volunteers would be? Were they they people that had had medical experience, or are they just compassionate people, or a variety? I don't know if there's any. I, I don't really know. You know, they were really diverse group of. Uh, Prisoners, and you know, I, I, we went through a lot of different volunteers over the eleven years that I was doing that program in, in that prison. So you know, they were from every kind of criminal background, every other, every ethnicity, every religious background. They just, you know, maybe were looking for something meaningful to do. Yeah. What motivated you to create this program? Well, I, you know, when I arrived at that federal prison, I was just you know, shocked by the, the amount of suffering there. And the AIDS epidemic was really just really, really gaining steam. And they were bringing all the AIDS patients from other federal penitentiaries to this facility. And it was a lot of fear around it at the time. And they had the AIDS patients locked back in a secure ward uh, in the mental health wing because uh, for their own protection, because, you know, the general population of, of the incarcerated had a lot of fear and they thought, you know, the government's just experimenting on us to see if we catch AIDS. And mm -hmm. they hadn't really done much education yet at all. And so I just started reaching out. Yeah, you know, I just became concerned about their plight. I was I was involved with a service organization. I used to show movies up on the uh, medical wards and I was taking a projector back to these locked wards in the mental health unit to the AIDS patients. And I just became concerned about their plight started reaching out to outside organizations. And, and uh, you know, then I met another uh, prisoner who had a similar interest. And we, we you know, we started to, well, talking to staff about, could we start a program? And the answer was no for a long time, but we persisted and we were able to finally get it going. That's amazing. Did, did they have, uh, in general, do they have hospice programs in most prisons or? Well, they didn't have any then. This was the first mm -hmm. one in the world that we know of. Uh, but as a result of our work, and I later started National Prison Hospice Association to get that model out into the world, there's roughly around 75 or 80 hospices in state and federal prisons in the U.S. of one kind or another, as well as uh, more internationally. So it's became a whole movement. And uh, there's been, you know, major conference work done on it and work within the, the National Commission on Healthcare and Corrections and uh, the American Correctional Association, U.S. Public Health Service and the National a hospice and palliative care organization. And we've been involved with all those organizations building that movement. Yeah. And are you still involved now? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not doing direct caregiving now. Uh, a little training here and there. Uh, there's actually some people working on a film that uh, about the prison hospice movement. And uh, for that film, I think I'm going to go in and lead a training uh, for inmate volunteers in a Connecticut prison. But it's not it's not a major focus of my activity right now. When I got out, 
I got very involved in end of life care altogether. I, I I was on faculty at a program called Being with Dying at uh, at an institute in Santa Fe, New Mexico, uh, for quite a few years, and then I was uh, at Naropa University on faculty for ten years uh, in Colorado, Boulder, Colorado, and there I started the Center for Contemplative End of Life Care, and we did six national conferences, and we had a, a professional certificate training program. So for the first ten years that I was out. I was very involved in training people uh, to do uh, end-of-life care from a contemplative uh, perspective. But, you know, since moving to the East Coast in in 2010, uh, I haven't been as much focused on that work. I'm much more focused on uh, the work that we do uh, in the criminal justice and public safety field. I spent a lot of time training correctional officers and police, other first responders, probation and parole officers, as well as bringing programs in for the incarcerated uh, folks. So that's a big part of my work, but I'm also another major part of my work is is being a meditation teacher and a seminar leader and, and providing transformational education online through courses and summits and so forth. So I'm kind of all over the place, but at any rate, the, the prison hospice care and, and our hospice care in general has not been a primary focus for the last 10 years or so. Not for any other reason than just, you know, things shifted in my life. Uh, did, did you, were you able to do meditation programs in prison? Yeah, I led a meditation group for 14 years that I was there. Wow. And out of that started Prison Dharma Network and Prison Mindfulness Institute. And we have programs in prisons all over the world now. Mm-hmm. Wow. I just think mindfulness and, and meditation in prison just, that, that could change the world alone, I would think. Well, it helps. Anyway, we just did an online summit, a prison mindfulness summit, and we had, you know, some wonderful speakers who were doing that kind of work in prisons and jails all over the U.S. So it is a big movement. It was kind of suppressed during the pandemic because the prisons wouldn't let people in for, you know, for reasons of uh, protecting staff and prisoners uh, from getting COVID-19. But uh, but it's starting to open up again. And we did this summit to kind of open up the field and get it going again. And uh, yeah. It's an interesting world to to work in, in terms of, because it is a world of loss of all kinds and a lot of grieving and, and so forth. And and being able to have a transformational relationship with that. Um, other, otherwise, you would burn out, right? Yes. Um, I've had a tremendous amount of loss in my life. And I had a lot of loss right around getting out of prison. I lost my, my father five months before I got out of prison, my mm-hmm. mother five months after I got out, the woman who had been my girlfriend prior to being in prison, but we weren't romantically involved, but she was my best friend, uh, died a year after I got out. Mm. And so there was a period there where I don't think I would have done direct hospice care at that point. I just, I'd been just had, you know, had too much loss. I needed to take care of myself. And then I lost another partner in cancer in, uh, in, uh, 2008. And, uh, very sadly, I, uh, lost my son two years ago, my son, mm. Robert. So, I've had a lot of loss in my life. It's definitely been part of my journey. Um, and trying to figure out, yeah, I mean, loss is very much part of life, uh, as you know. And um, so, you know, you can really get knocked down by it. it can be really disorienting. You know, it's, it's, it's one of the things that most demonstrates to us that, you know, we're not, our self is not, you know, limited to the skin encapsulated body. You know, we live within a matrix of relationships. That's where we really live. And so when we have major losses, it's like, who am I, right? There's this whole, we have, there's this prop period of, you know, really 
disorientation, destabilization of who we are and our place in the world. And it takes quite a while to kind of reweave that matrix of our relationships and, and our sense of who we are. And, and, uh, so, you know, it's very much part of life. And, um, I think it, it, you know, it can be, it can be incredibly transformational if we, if we can develop the skills to work with it in an inner way and to really embrace it. It's not that anyone chooses loss or wants loss and we don't wish loss on anybody, but it's part of life. And, um, losing a son, losing a child is not supposed to happen. It does happen to millions of people, obviously, but you know, you always think, you know, they're going to survive you. And, and, uh, so losing a child is incredibly painful, but you know, when, when there is a loss like that, then you're kind of at a choice point, you know, are you going to find some way to embrace that journey and grow with it? Or are you going to kind of let it knock you down and end up living the rest of your life in some kind of sense of being victimized by it and really debilitated by it. So, you know, it's always a choice that we're at and it's a, and, you know, it can be a really tough choice to make. It, it's really tough pulling us out, sometimes pulling ourselves out of, you know, depths of depression. When I when I lost both my parents and then I lost my friend Karen a year after I got out of prison, uh, that was the first time I think I ever experienced a really depression in my life. I mean, I all those years in prison, you know, it was right, depression was kind of like, it was kind of right there. And I just made a choice not to go there. I just was not going to. But, you know, actually, after Karen died, I was there was a period of like four months where I could barely get out of bed. I kept I I did. I kept working. I had to work, but I could barely move. It was like I was swimming through a sea of mud. Right. And, uh, you know, if I didn't have to go somewhere that day, I wouldn't even get dressed. I did, you know, I, I just couldn't move. I couldn't think. I was like I forced myself to keep going and working. But um, it was the first time I'd really experienced that that kind of depression. And fortunately, after about six months, the physical aspect of it lifted. And um but yeah, it's. Um, I think it's part, very much part of our our human journey, and our possibilities in life have a lot to do with the extent to which we're willing to embrace it. That's well said. I I, I would love for everybody to to get that message that paying attention. I know of the whole loss because I I suffered lots of loss and and a lot close together, and I. I realized I had a choice. I I could fall into that deep dark place, or I could do something to transform myself. And so I I found it very transformative to me. And I I can honestly say I'm happier now than I ever have been, which kind of shocked me the first time I realized that because you'd think you always think you're going to like be with somebody forget forever. Your family's always going to be around, all that sort of thing. When they're all gone. It's it's kind of tough, but I still I'm still happy now because I I am constantly doing things that I can see how it helps other people. I've I've often thought about prisoners and not that as you said they have lots of different kinds of loss, but one of the losses I can just imagine if you're in prison and your loved ones are outside dying, and there's you can't say goodbye, you can't do anything about it. Yeah, it's very, really tough. And, you know, typically, uh, if you lose a loved one while you're in prison, a chaplain comes up and lets you know that somebody died, right? You know, but then there's really not a lot of support or much help generally. And, uh, you know, it can it can be really tough. My grandfather, who I was very close to, died while I was in prison. And I really remember that when, when the chaplain came and got me and told me that. Um, you know, what, what, it remind, what going through the pandemic 
that really reminded me of, of that whole journey and experience because I was seeing, you know, as we all were in the first couple of years of the pandemic, all these people dying in ICU wards, you know, on ventilators and their family having no access to them. You know, none of the normal ways of having any kind of closure. A lot of the bodies were ending up in semi trucks and, you know, refrigerated trucks and stuff. And, the, you know, the, the families never really even got to receive the remains of their loved one or, or uh, you know, so it's just such the whole way that we normally deal with loss and, and so forth was completely unavailable to people. And I can only can only imagine how incredibly painful that was. And when, when my son died two years ago, I also really connected with that because um, he was living in South America at the time where his mother lives. And he'd been back and forth his whole life. And he had recently been living in the U.S. and and then decided to go back down there and then and right before the pandemic. And then he was stuck there with the pandemic. And and um, we're not sure how he died. Uh, his mother found him one morning. Um, he he had seizures because he he had, he had a head injury that he incurred in Peru and a beating he he received mm. in Peru. He was, I don't know what happened. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time at some club late at night. And, and uh, in 2008, and, you know, I got down there the next day. He was in a coma for 10 days. That was a whole journey. He was kind of really kind of out of control with a frontal lobe head injury for six, nine, 10 months. And then finally became himself again. And that, that was all happening while my then partner was dying of cancer. Right. Mm. That was a really tough time in my life, but he eventually was fine. But then uh, five or six years later, he started having seizures because of the scar tissue in his frontal lobe from that injury. And so, you know, sometimes he would wake up like around five in the morning with a seizure and seizures that won't normally kill you, but they can trigger a respiratory event or a heart attack. And so we're almost sure, certain that it was seizure related. Um, we don't know. He could have had COVID. We don't know. But anyway, his, his mom just found him one morning and he was already gone. And um, mm. so, but at any rate, I wasn't able to go there. You couldn't travel then. You couldn't, Peru wouldn't have let me in if I tried to go there. It was all completely closed. Uh, and uh, and the, the, authority, the authorities insisted on him being buried the very next day because of COVID. And so... I really, you know, had a sense of what so many people were probably going through with losing their loved ones and not being able to, you know, have any connection of any, any kind of normal connection or go through any kind of normal memorials or, you know, we did do an online memorial on Zoom for my son that, that you know, hundreds of people came to from my family, his family. There were a lot of people there from Peru and people from all over the U.S. And it was a wonderful event. But you know, that was sometime later, but in, in the immediate after, I still haven't been down there. I mean, I, w I would love to get down there and visit his grave, and um, uh, but I haven't been able to do that yet. But, you know, I have a meditation room in my home where, where my wife and I do our meditation practice, uh, and um, I'm there every morning with her. And, and I have, for the first six months after he died, I had his, a big photo right up on our shrine, and uh, I was doing all kinds of intensive practices from the Tibetan Buddhist tradition that I've been practicing in for over 50 years. We have a lot of practices related to death and dying and the transitions of death. And so I was very intensely doing all those practices for him. And I still do some. And But now I have this, that same picture. It's not on the shrine. It's kind of right to my right where I sit. You know, it's right there. And I include him in my practice every day. And you know, I worked really hard at it, but today when I look at his picture, I don't collapse into pain. I, I smile. I feel joy and appreciation for the time I had with him. So 
Uh, it was not easy, but I, I do really feel we do have, you know, the knowledge and skills uh, from all the different contemplative disciplines and body-mind disciplines and everything we know today from neuroscience and everything we know from the meditative traditions, as well as, you know, teachings around grief and so forth, that if we're willing to embrace the journey and do the hard work, it doesn't have to be a, a, a you know, like a that you're sentenced to live your life and with that kind of excruciating pain. It can, there's no way to avoid the excruciating pain initially. And grief, you know, has its own time and its own rhythm. It comes in waves. You can't control it. But, you know, if you're really willing to work with it, I think we can, we can leverage any trauma, any pain for growth and end up in a better place than where we started. Oh, that's what a wonderful statement that is. I, I agree with you hundred percent. And I think that's a good place to, to draw our conversation to a close here. It's so positive, you know, that, that we can do something. doesn't matter where you are or what you're doing. You can do something to help you, to, you or people around you to be able to deal with grief. And the, the work that you've created and done, I think, is wonderful. And I love the idea of the the mindful mindfulness and consciousness work that you're doing. That's that's just uh, the world needs more. <laughs> so well, thank th you very much, and uh, uh, great to connect with you and your audience. And I wish everyone the best. And you know, we do have the resources. We have the internal resources. We need to learn how to access them, but we also don't have to do it alone. You know, there's there's so much community available. Uh, around just about any kind of trauma or loss you're going to experience. And so, you know, doing the transformational work in community is really, really the best. So uh, really wish everyone the best. I, I agree with you 100% there. And on the show notes under today's episode, you'll find more about Fleet and what uh, how you can contact him or see the work that he does. So thank you very much. I, I really appreciate you being here. And to my audience, I'll see you next time. Do you want more comfort, support, and happiness? Join the Grief and Happiness Alliance. Visit my website at lovingandlivingyourwaythroughgrief.com and read my book, Loving and Living Your Way Through Grief. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast, rate it, review it, and binge on all our episodes on grief and happiness. I can't wait to welcome you back to another episode.